Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and this month, once again, my guest is Dr. Nerses Kopalian. He's a political scientist and the author of the EVN Security Report. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Thanks for having me, Maria. We're going to be discussing the security briefing that you prepared for June, um, which you called Strategic Obstructionism and a Potemkin Hegemon. Uh, and what we saw in June was uh, parallel yet contradictory developments. As negotiations intensified, uh, so did the scope of uh, Russia's attack on the EU's or the West's initiatives in the peace process and uh, ceasefire violations by Azerbaijan, in particular uh, one of the most perhaps, I mean, they're all egregious, but the one um, where they are consistently attacking the steel plant in the village of Yeras, which has a joint Armenian-American business venture. We had injuries, uh, two Indians were wounded in those attacks, and those attacks are continuing as we speak. Um, so you talk about uh, contingency and scenario planning, which we're going to get to, but before that, this notion of strategic obstructionism, where on the one hand, uh, Baku's using violence to disrupt the, the peace process, and on the other hand, Moscow seeks to use its declining sort of regional influence to obstruct Western-led efforts. Uh, so very plainly put, could you elaborate a little bit on, on, on this notion of strategic obstructionism? Um, of course, definitely. So what we've seen is that uh, Baku's approach has been uh, an extension of its sort of very well-developed obstructionist policy. They use a fusion of kinetic diplomacy, which we've talked about, and also their very large uh, hybrid warfare capabilities in this context. So what Baku does, for example, is on the one hand, they maintain a consistent present and present a, a certain posture where which they're advancing, engaging in the negotiation process. While on the other hand, they continue to basically engage in behavior that contradicts the, the peace process because they consistently violate the ceasefire, both in Artsakh and uh, Armenia proper. We talked about the Yeras shootings. Uh, there were basically a continuous 28 days of straight ceasefire violations by Azerbaijan cross-border with Armenia, as well as operations in uh, Artsakh. We saw four uh, uh, servicemen of the uh, Artsakh Defense Forces killed in a uh, operation right under the nose of the Russian peacekeepers. And so what we're seeing here is, is that uh, Baku obviously cannot back away and walk off, uh, walk away from the negotiating process because that would produce a serious political fallout with respect to international capital and their involvement uh, with the a lot of international uh, uh, platforms that have, that have uh, nations that have pushed this process. So what they're doing is they're not specifically uh, leaving the peace process but they're engaging in behavior that obstructs it. And so this is done strategically. And the objective is to always have culpable deniability. So Baku's approach is basically fork-tongued. They say one thing with one side of the tongue and they engage in different behavior and say something else. We've kind of observed that. But what has become more acute is that Russia has also intensified its level of obstructionism. Um, two very important things stand out. One, we know for some time that the United States was pushing very hard to have Baku a Stepanakert negotiations. Stepanakert has been denied agency since the Kochayan administration as far as sitting on a table. So the Western position right now is that, which is highly heavily supported by Yerevan, is that Stepanakert and Baku should sit down and have negotiations with international mediators and instruments. What this does is this gives Stepanakert agency. And the day that Azerbaijan directly sits under international mediators and has conversations and negotiates with Stepanakert, that is a tacit form of recognition of the rights of uh, Stepanakert itself. 
prior to this meeting that was to be held in Sofia, uh, Bulgaria, which became revealed uh, about two weeks ago, Russia began a process of discrediting those negotiations. And so there was sort of a blitzkrieg from Russian media and the MFA discrediting the process. And through extensive pressure, uh, Stepanakir backed out of that, uh, uh, those negotiations. That is a clear case of strategic obstructionism by Russia. Whereas Yerevan is pushing a, a one venue for peace, the West is pushing something else, and then Stepanakir is basically being put in a very impossible position by virtue of Russian pressure. At the same time, as we noted, Azerbaijan continues its consistent ceasefire violations, and so their obstructionism takes more of an uh, interstate violent mode. So what we're seeing is basically a two-pronged approach in this context. Diplomatic pressure by Russia, Russian attacks on Yerevan and uh, uh, on Stepanakert, and then what uh, Baku is doing. The second case was basically what happened on the Hakari Bridge. Uh, the fact that Russian peacekeepers basically accompanied uh, Azerbaijani members of the Azerbaijani armed forces to plant the Azerbaijani flag, what, what, what is Armenian territory, and the fact that Azerbaijan is basically fully blockading that bridge, whereas according to the September 9 uh, trilateral statement that is supposed to be fully under Russian control, these are all indicators that there's sort of a very well-established, multi-layered uh, strategic obstructionism that is going on that is being coordinated between Mo Moscow and Baku. Right. And I think it's important, as always, to, to note that we are now in the seventh month of the total siege and blockade of Artsakh. The situation is extremely critical at the moment because whereas before Russian peacekeepers and the International Committee for the Red Cross were allowed to use the corridor uh, for humanitarian purposes uh, to, to deliver medicine and fuel and whatever was necessary. Now this has also been blocked and there's always excuses being used by the Azerbaijani side as to why they're doing it. Uh, and, and we had a, a tragedy of two children dying because their mother had gone out to look for food and they had wandered out of the house. Um, and, and the fear obviously is at the moment that and yesterday, Armenia's, uh, hum uh, excuse me, Artsakh's human rights ombudsman issued a statement calling on the international community to say, look, this is, we're at ground zero right now, and, and the situation can spiral out of control, and I don't know what has to happen uh, for this situation to um, alleviate itself, but I mean, we do know what needs to happen. But just to come back uh, to Russia for a second, it's interesting, after the West's consistent pressure on Baku, we, we've also seen Maria Zakharova, uh, the spokesperson for the foreign ministry, the Russian foreign ministry, also calling on Azerbaijan to unblock the corridor to allow for humanitarian transport. But these calls just seem to be, um, you know, voices in the wind, if you will. But um, well, those calls are basically just designed to give Russia some level of culpable deniability. I mean, they cannot participate with Baku in the blocking of the bridge, for example, the, in the launching corridor. Uh, they cannot basically criticize Armenia for filing complaints against the role of the Russian peacekeepers on the Hakari Bridge. I mean, the Russian foreign ministry came out and basically blamed Armenia for that. So there was a sharp back and forth between Armenia's foreign ministry and Russia's foreign ministry over what happened in the Hikari Bridge. So Russians say one thing, but they do the other. And so in this context, they're the only ones that have troops on the ground, yet they refuse to do anything. So these calls are a little contradictory in that context. Right, sure. And also, just as a reminder to our readers, that, uh, to our listeners, sorry, that there is the International Court of Justice's 
legally binding decision on Baku to open the, the, the corridor, which they have not complied with, and this was back in February and then reaffirmed again a few days ago. Uh, but I do now want to sort of switch gears and talk about um, how you have sort of fused scenario and contingency planning, uh, to, which is a necessary tool, right, to prepare small states or states that are vulnerable for probable outcomes that can have, uh, you know, extraordinary uh, impact on the country. And you gave two scenarios, and it was interesting to read for me as well, because you talked about outcomes, the, you did a severity assessment, contingency planning, risk minimizing. So it was a very comprehensive um, approach. Does Armenia not do this at the moment? <laughs> we need to be talking and writing about these things? Well, that's a very good question. So, you know, Armenia has never had the institutions and the structure to engage in uh, scenario contingency planning. Scenario contingency planning is used uh, extensively by uh, NATO countries, those with, uh, that have uh, advanced uh, sort of uh, analytic departments within their uh, security uh, apparatus and those who shape and develop security policy. And we've talked about this extensively. Considering the fact that Armenian security for 30 years was basically farmed out to Russia, we don't have a tradition or the ability to do this. So we have highly intelligent people, but they are not trained to engage in this kind of behavior and this kind of analysis because it's something that's, it has never been done. Now, I will note that the the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs did use uh, scenario contingency planning right after uh, February of 2022 when the Russian invasion happened. And so it basically undertook a very proactive foreign policy based on potential scenarios and possible contingencies. But within the security architecture and security policy making, this is something that we're still uh, recently developing. So we understand, for example, that uh, there must be certain contingency plans. But scenario planning and contingency planning is a science. In that context, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, in the article, in our briefing, for example, I introduced some general concepts that are being that are utilized to uh, develop scenario contingency planning. Uh, as we go things from statistical modeling to open source intelligence to triangulation of content to geostrategic analysis, it requires a lot of training for someone to engage in this kind of dense analytics and scenario construction. And so because uh, this is something new, it's going to be going to take time for me to, to, to train and develop the, the sufficient experts to do that. That being said, it doesn't mean uh, uh, that Armenian security uh, policymakers aren't uh, thinking about it. And so the purpose uh, of the security briefing and the fact that I engage uh, in advising some of these uh, uh, sectors is to kind of introduce this modality of thinking uh, to the public. More specifically, not simply about scenarios, but how to develop contingencies. Because the objective of contingency planning is to mitigate uncertainty, right? And so we use different scientific methods and forecast modeling and all kinds of techniques to mitigate uncertainty. And so the less uncertainty that Armenia has, right, relatively speaking, the better prepared it would be for any shocks or unexpected developments. And as one of our scenarios talks about, you know, if, if uh, even two months ago, if we're talking about some Russian uh, uh, general or some Russian uh, uh, head of a mercenary organization or whatever, would march onto a Moscow or attempt to basically shoot down X number of uh, Russian helicopters and kill X number of Russian uh, uh, soldiers and simply get away with it or have sort of these cracks in the very rigid hierarchical structure in Moscow, 
it would have been deemed a nonsensical conversation. But we realize the unexpected does happen. And so what Scenario Continuously Planning does is uh, it basically produces modeling where you can anticipate things that might not uh, specifically cross our minds, or there might be some probability of these things happening. And based on that, develop contingency plans. So if they do happen, at least we're prepared to some extent to address those potentially destabilizing developments. Well, certainly the Wagner Group's activities um, sent shockwaves, shockwaves not only through the post-Soviet space, but throughout the whole world. And if, if you remember that day, I think it was a Saturday, Nurses, everybody was just following what was taking place. Uh, and it was so incredible uh, because it was something that perhaps many people didn't anticipate. So, so Armenia has a lot of uh, scenario and contingency planning it needs to do. Obviously, like you said, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, some modeling was done. Now we have the issues, are there possible domestic cracks or instability in Russia? And what will this mean for the South Caucasus, particularly for Artsakh? Um, so you you did one uh, scenario on contingency planning for for Russia's decline and domestic political instability, and a second one on the Vietnamization of Ukraine. Do you want to briefly uh, just? I, I know we don't have a lot of time to do this, but and and I would really encourage people to read it because it is an interesting way of looking at uh, potential shocks to Armenia. Absolutely. So right. So these two scenarios were basically examples. There were exercises to introduce the public on how how, how it works. So one scenario looked like looked at basically what we call the Vietnamization of, of Ukraine, where you have a continuous war of attrition, and based on that, what are going to be what are going to be the consequences for Armenia? Okay. So a few things have become clear. For example, Russia's unable to basically meet its uh, uh, security responsibilities towards Armenia uh, on procurement. It has failed to do that. Russia continues to decline as a regional hegemon, hence the term of a Potemkin hegemon. It also basically uh, also continues to have diminishing influence uh, in the geopolitical and security architecture of the region. So understanding those things as sort of a scenario, right? What are the contingency plans that Armenia should uh, bring about and develop to address those potential issues? Uh, if, for example, three years ago, we were having a conversation that Russia would not be able to produce sufficient weapons uh, to meet Armenia's needs, this would have been considered to be nonsensical argument yet right now this has become a severe reality so developing contingency plans for these kinds of developments is very very important so the ukraine issue uh in, in this context isn't really uh out of the box thinking because we know there's a war we know the direction is going so it's much easier to construct this scenario but the second example with respect to uh, potential instability in Russia, uh, this was not a scenario that many would have uh, considered having a high probability. And it's at this point, we still cannot say that there is going to be instability. But definitely the developments that we saw with Prigozhin and, and, and the Wagner group, it suggests that Armenia should have contingency planning. So, for example, assume that the war keeps basically uh, creating more complexities for Russia and Russia is not able to make inroads and the their Ukrainian counteroffensive produces out, outcomes that create domestic instability in, in Russia. Is Armenia prepared to deal with that? What are going to be the consequences for Armenia? Uh, what would a destabilized Russia look like and how would this affect uh, Armenia? Because Armenia still has a lot of economic interest. There's a very large Armenian population in Russia. So there are all sort of these intertwined and interdependent factors that need to be considered. Further, 
assuming that they may be based on a, uh, whatever forecast modeling and logic probability modeling that we may do, whatever the probability of that may be, right? Uh, who might come to power after this instability? Would those that come to power be favorable towards Armenia or create more problems for Armenia? Uh, what contingencies can Armenia develop? Should Armenia develop back-channel relationships with the given factions during times of instability? So on and so forth. So, you know, we're going through these very, very quick, but these are some very sort of uh, uh, basic examples that, you know, scenarios uh, allow us to understand contextual development. And then contingency planning prepared a country so that should these shocks or uncertainties happen, we at least have things to work off of and then keep changing those. We have to understand that also scenario planning and contingency planning are not a precise uh, art because you can control developments. But if you have some foundation, you can adapt and therefore address these serious issues and crises that might come up. Well, there are a multitude of configurations. Uh, you know, as you were explaining, I was thinking, okay, so uh, Russia is stuck in this quagmire uh, with its invasion in Ukraine. We're seeing uh, its decline uh, of its influence in the region. Then there's the, the, the issue of what happens in Turkey, right? Mix those two. Then if developments were to um, spin out of control in Iran, for example, how does that impact? And what if there's domestic instability in Azerbaijan, right? So there's it's, it's almost a, a limitless amount of possible scenarios that require this kind of planning. Definitely. And what statistical modeling does, it gives us a range of probability assessments. And so on, based on probability, we can prioritize uh, the, the sort of what would be considered to be a higher likelihood of a certain scenario being a reality. So uh, in that context, uh, that's a very good point, right? Developments in Iran. Uh, you know, Iran has had a sort of a, a, a issue of every two or three years, we have some kind of public uh, uh, uprising. And if this, for example, culminates and there's some level of domestic instability, what are going to be the consequences of that in Armenia? We need scenario contingency planning for that, most definitely. Uh, same with Turkey. You know, uh, the Erdogan regime isn't going to last forever. You need contingency planning for both the behavior of that regime and once Erdogan is, is for example, passes away or the next five years, six years uh, is done, uh, is incapacitated, whatever the case might be, right? How do we deal with that? Same with Azerbaijan, right? Power transition theory basically suggests that, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes are stable until they're not. And so do we have contingency plans if there's a power transition uh, struggle in Azerbaijan, should something happen to Aliyev or when the time comes to be basically hand off the baton? So these are laws that we develop. You know, um, in the United States, there's sort of a joke that the MOD, that their Ministry of Defense, the Department of Defense, has a contingency plan for everything. They even have something on aliens, for example, landing on Earth. Uh, you know, um, we, we um, you know, there's an anecdotal component to it, but the objective of this is basically to uh, use uh, modeling and various scientific techniques, social science techniques, to triangulate possible scenarios and then to be prepared. So we need to understand those factors, and then once we do that, clearly uh, our policies could be better honed to address those crises that, are, that come up.
Right. Speaking of the United States, we also have to 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 be prepared for shifts in American foreign policy. With the we saw one thing with the Trump administration, we see another with the Biden administration. We have elections coming up. How is that going to impact? There's the role of India and China. It's endless, like you said. Aside from aliens landing, uh, you know, in Yerevan, uh, there are many many scenarios that need to be considered and 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 so to prepare the yeah. And, and these are two different types of scenario contingency planning. One is diplomacy-related and the other is security-related. So with security, we're, our concentration is mostly Azerbaijan, Russia, with some elements of Turkey and potential instability in Iran. So security is basically those who are in our geopolitical sphere. Uh, but diplomacy also has to be very cognizant of those developments. You know, uh, if there's a change in the elections, uh, in, in the leadership in the United States after the 2024 elections, right, who is going to be the new Secretary of State? Are they going to be active? Would the South Caucasus or the post-Soviet state be uh, an important theater of interest for the United States, or would it not? And so uh, we need to definitely be prepared for those developments as well. So right, you're very good. Those are very good points, Maria. Um, you know, contingency planning for both diplomacy and security are vital. We have made quite a bit of inroads in diplomacy as we see the very proactive uh, uh, diplomatic initiatives that are out there. But again, it's a work in progress and a lot needs to be done. But at this point, we need to get the ball rolling on the security component uh, uh, quite, quite urgently. Right. And, and you know, we've talked about resiliency and the importance of making sure that Armenia's not only security architecture is resilient to shocks, but all of its institutions, whole of government, whole of society. Um, and so as we try to move toward resiliency, small state security, scenario and contingency planning become um, absolutely imperative um, uh, for, for not only Armenia's security uh, institutions, but also diplomacy, because one absolutely impacts the other. Most definitely. And this is the problem we've had for the last 30 years. We've always had a reactive foreign policy and a reactive security policy because we had no contingency planning. And so we would wait for things to happen and then try to figure out how to proceed. Whereas if we had contingency and scenario planning, we could potentially anticipate based on probability what might things look like and we could at least be have some level of preparation. So this is a complete change uh, to the way we think about security in Armenia. And as you pointed out, small state security, resiliency, uh, whole of society, whole of government, these approaches are fundamentally heavily based on contingency planning. And so these are important things that are now we are now introducing into the security architecture of Armenia. Well, thank you once again for the very interesting conversation um, for the security briefing. And it was really just as somebody who is not an expert uh, in this uh, in these fields uh, to read and to understand the importance of this kind of uh, planning for the security uh, and safety prosperity of Armenia and Artsakh. So thank you, Nersas. My pleasure, Maria.